You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. In this edition, we look at some of the cutting-edge research into stroke. March's JNNP is dedicated to the condition, showcasing the diverse avenues being explored to drive future improvements. And here we pick up some of the highlights. JNNP's Associate Editor, Nick Ward, is going to take you through these this month. He's also a reader in Clinical Neurology, UCL Institute of Neurology. Coming up, he'll be discussing outpatient care for those who've had an acute minor stroke with Peter Rothwell. Can it be done safely and effectively? We ran a service where we routinely discharged on the same day minor strokes uh, with an NIH score of less than three. They did well. 95% were discharged on the same day. And of those, only about 6% were subsequently admitted in the next 30 days. And predicting return to work after stroke. Tautu Karanan explains why severity of cognitive deficits is the best indicator. First, you just need to answer the question, uh, how many cognitive deficits do you think a patient has in terms of these clinical neuropsychological impairment categories? And then figure that... Every deficit a patient has doubles the risk of later inability to return to work. Now, patients recovering from stroke are often packed off to have a neuropsychological assessment, often showing some form of executive dysfunction, which very little can be done about. Owen White, he's an associate professor in the Department of Neurology at Royal Melbourne Hospital, has shown testing for ocular motor deficits is a sensitive way of assessing cognitive function and that patients often still have problems three months post-stroke. However, he's gone further than simply tracking this, coming up with a computerised treatment programme. And furthermore, he believes that improving these deficits will spill over and cause improvements in both motor and sensory areas. Here's Nick, finding out more. Owen, the first question I wanted to ask you was actually, if you could just explain a bit about what the tests of ocular motor function are that you do, because some of the listeners might not be quite so familiar with exactly what the tests are. Well, put very simply, for years, people have looked at amplitude of uh, eye movements, the latency to the generation of eye movements, and also the peak velocity of saccades in particular and the gain of smooth pursuits. Now, in general terms, we're trying to look at whole of brain function in some respects. We're trying to look at cognition and the cognitive processing that's, that's involved in the brain. And the control of eye movements involves very widely distributed networks that involve most of the brain. I mean, almost half of all neurons that enter and leave the nervous system are related to vision and control of eye movements. And eye movement sensory system is the first one to develop. So we're trying to look at the cognitive control, the interaction between input and output and all the processing that's involved in between and the effects that might have. So we can control the paradigms that people are doing and we look at firstly their capacity to generate purely uh, reflexive uh, fast eye movements, saccades. We then look at their capacity to inhibit saccades by uh, giving them distractors and see whether or not they can do that. We look at their capacity to remember a motor function that might need to be delayed and we also look at the overall executive capacity to generate a saccade that is equal and opposite, so-called anti-saccades. So bearing that in mind, what was the motivation for, for this study? 
This is part of a, an, an ongoing study, a larger study, I guess. Uh, we've been looking at the clinical utility of uh, cognitive studies in the ocular motor system in neurological disease. We have a large stroke unit at, at Royal Melbourne. We've always had the uh, intention of looking at, at vascular disease and we're going on to look at small vessel disease as well and looking at what we can identify with these cognitive abnormalities that we see. In terms of stroke, one of the areas that we were hoping to do was to show sensitivity so that we could actually explore this further and then explore some um, pilot cognitive rehabilitation pro programs we're developing to see whether or not we can actually improve outcomes, particularly in those patients with milder strokes who can start on a simple cognitive retraining program in hospital and perhaps uh, get them back to a more normal status shortly afterwards because we've all had that experience of these patients who actually don't recover very well functionally even after they leave hospital with seemingly no motor or sensory deficit that we can identify. So tell us what the main findings were then. Firstly, there was a substantial cognitive deficit as, as demonstrated by uh, abnormalities in answer saccades and abnormality in memory-guided saccades. And these, these are systems that are very heavily dependent on inhibitory capacity as well. None of these patients were in hospital more than a week. And they were all discharged without any apparent motor or sensory deficit. But three months down the road, we're showing a significant improvement, but we're showing patients still have significant uh, deficits in their eye movements. So the fact that they improve over a much longer period shows that there are distributed networks that are still disrupted. The fact that they are still not normal at three months shows us how pervasive and persistent these deficits are. In a sense, you're not talking about this as a biomarker of something that can be measured with other tools because in your paper there wasn't really a correlation between these clear findings and what you describe as, as the clinical scores. This is something new. This is You're saying that this is something that is just is currently not picked up. Is that Would that be correct? Yes. What this is really showing is that there is subclinical dysfunction that patients are aware of that we're not measuring. Now, there have been studies mm -hmm. where persistent neuropsychological deficits have been identified in patients. But again, these are looking at, at, at widely distributed network effects rather than specific motor node effects or sensory node effects, you know, parietal or frontal motor strip. You know, these are very limited um, measures of, of overall function, whereas we're looking at a much wider distributed network effect. So what degree do you think that you can unpack the difference between cognitive recovery and motor recovery, or indeed that not particularly important? No, I don't think it is particularly important. We've had this artificial separation between motor and sensory function for over 100 years. And the fact is that, that that's not the way the brain works. It's a series of interdigitating uh, networks that function together. And if you interrupt at any one level, you produce dysfunction. And we're all used to, to a cascade of events that might trigger something like migraine, but we still think in terms of motor and sensory separation. Unless you have a sensory stimulus, why would you move? So what's, what's next for this test? Well, what we're in the process of doing now is expanding the study to put in more early stroke patients, but also to look at those patients that have um, small vessel disease that are picked up incidentally and don't have any known deficit, we're looking at that group as well. We, we've actually 
completed a pilot study in that area to show sensitivity in patients that don't have any known cognitive deficit or anything, but we, we are actually sensitively identifying things. What we really want to do uh, is look at two things. One, in the, in the small vessel group, if we intervene with treatment early on when we're seeing very little, are we going to make a difference in, in long-term outcomes? The second thing that we want to look at is introducing rehabilitation programs whereby people have to practice inhibitory skills and practice uh, their capacity to generate uh, new movements and see whether in fact that improves both their cognitive outcome and their subjective functional outcome so that we can reduce morbidity in that patient group that remain off work for a long period of time who would otherwise return to relatively normal function. Okay, essentially what you're saying is that you would specifically treat the deficit that you've uncovered, but this in itself would lead to more widespread improvements. Oh yeah, there is some evidence that there is overflow between attentional systems in both sensory and motor systems, so from one system to another. Mm. If we can actually, uh, and we don't know this for sure, but what we're, no. what we're positing is that if we can improve their cognitive ocular motor function, that in fact this overflows. Realistically speaking, I think it's reasonable to believe that the brain shares these attentional systems because of the amount of hardware involved in it. It's hard to imagine that it's got completely different circuitry. There may be some differences between, say, somatic motor system and um, uh, ocular motor system, but there is a lot of overlap, and it's in, it's in the same area. Oh, I see. Okay, I, yeah, so that's interesting. That's an interesting idea. So the last thing I want to ask you is just a practical thing about how easy it is to do this in a clinical setting. Well, that's the embarrassing thing. It's so simple, my Aunt Fanny could do it. Uh, um, everybody, I mean, we've had people tell us, oh, but nobody has a lab, etc., etc. I mean, you can actually set up a lab for probably less than £30,000, even though the pound is a lot smaller now than it used to be. And there are people in, in England who are doing this at the moment and who are looking at, at, at somewhat similar things to, to us, the Oxford group in particular. And... The fact is that once the, the paradigms are sorted out, you can actually do this in the clinic in about 10 minutes with some of the newer equipment. It's just then having the analysis programs, which a, a number of laboratories are developing and which I think will be probably commercially available within five to 10 years at not very much money. So the answer is it's actually very simple to do. The equipment is now very cheap, it's very sturdy, and it lasts for years. I, I suppose thinking about the future, one of the things that would be very useful in rehabilitation is to be able to move some of these treatments into people's own homes. So if one's talking about training eye movements, I'd imagine you must have thought about whether it's possible to do this kind of thing over the internet. You don't need to be able to measure their output. You don't need to be depending on really high tech. You need to have the programs for them to, to, to play with, so to speak. Yeah. We're putting our um, training paradigms onto, onto an iPad, which we will lend out, and we're hoping we'll get a percentage of them back. They're really very similar to computer games. In fact, if you take some of the popular computer games, they need very little adaptation to actually increase the inhibitory load and the memory load, etc. We're developing similar things. And if you're particularly interested in programmes to treat ocular deficits following stroke, you may want to listen to our recent podcast on the Read Write programme. That's to treat hemianopic alexia. 
Tatu Karanan from the Department of Neurology at Lapland Central Hospital has also been examining the value of measuring cognitive function, this time in predicting return to work. Here's Nick again. So, Tatu, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the background to the study? Uh, first of all, I think uh, one important thing is that why to study working-aged stroke patients. They do represent only one-fourth of the total stroke population, but uh, it's important to uh, study them because they are especially uh, expensive uh, stroke subpopulation for the whole society. And this is because it seems that approximately half of these working-aged patients cannot return to work after a stroke. The uh, other thing in the background to this study is that we were trying to answer the question, what is the best way to define the severity of stroke when thinking the occupational outcome of these patients? Mm. Okay, and what were the main findings of your study? The most important finding was the idea that when talking of occupational prognosis of a stroke patient, it might be a good idea to think the severity of stroke as the cognitive severity of stroke. Mm. We tried to predict our patients returning to work by building a predictive model that would include all those factors that have been considered relevant in the literature and additionally were associated with the outcome in our data and of course include the neuropsychological data not previously that much assessed in these predictions. Just like in previous research, we found that many factors contribute to the uh, occupational outcome of our stroke patients. The younger the patient, the higher the education, the higher the occupational status, the more likely uh, was a patient to return to work. But when it came to the severity of stroke, known as a best predictor of return to work after stroke, we found that most often used definitions of the severity, namely the clinical and functional outcomes, they were okay associated with this occupational outcome, but they weren't even close to the importance of the cognitive severity of stroke, which uh, we defined as the number of early cognitive deficits. So, so what you were doing, rather than taking individual measures within each of the cognitive domains, you were essentially trying to ask the question whether they had deficits in each of the seven domains in a binary fashion. So in other words, yeah, whether yeah. they had difficulty in processing or executive function. And then essentially they had a score out of seven. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Were there any particular domains, cognitive domains, that had uh, more predictive powers? The executive dysfunction and uh psychomotor slowness were the most prevalent findings. But I think when assessing stroke patients as a group, it's important to remember the heterogeneity of these patients so and the heterogeneity of, of their demands in working life. So what might be devastating for one is not necessarily devastating for another patient. So and that's why we we tried to measure the neuropsychological impairment in a global manner. It actually proved a pretty useful way of thinking the risk of adverse occupational outcome. First, you just need to answer the question, uh, how many cognitive deficits do you think a patient has in terms of these clinical neuropsychological impairment categories. 
and then figure that every deficit a patient has doubles the risk of later inability to return to work. The procedure was built for academic purposes, but um, I think it turned out as rather handy in, in the clinical re reality as well. One of the things that um, I'd be interested to know is what these patients were reporting. So the, the patients that had particular difficulty in returning to work, what were their symptoms? What were they describing to their, to their doctors? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And uh, unfortunately, again, something uh, that I now think that we didn't test in adequate detail. What I can say that the patient's typical complaints were difficulties, for example, in uh, concentration, memory, and they might have had some sense of some sort of inefficiency or being slower than before, and uh, they were getting tired quicker than before. We have some questionnaire data being analyzed and not ready yet, but I must say that now when I've come this far, it is clear that patients' subjective experience concerning not only the neuropsychological impairment, but especially the reasons for why they think they didn't or did return to work as well would have been extremely interesting. But it's interesting from the point of view of trying to understand why it is that cognitive deficits, which clearly have a major impact on people's ability to get back to a normal function, um, which includes uh, getting back to work. Why does we don't pick it up quite so much in the clinic? I think this is a fairly universal finding that cognitive deficits are regarded or, or as an unmet need, yeah. something that we're not quite as good at dealing with. We're well able to recognize weakness. We can recognize problems with uh, language function. But yeah. cognition it seems to be something that it's it's easier to ignore. And it, one of the things, maybe if the patients don't quite recognize that this is what they've got, then they're less likely to want to describe it to their physicians. Yeah, yeah. So it does beg the question, if we're going to get better at detecting these deficits, what we're going to do for these patients? So what kind of things are there on the horizons for being able to treat cognitive deficits after stroke? One important thing would be to uh, establish a routine to do these neuropsychological assessments within the first weeks. There has been some debate whether you should do these neuropsychological or whether you can rely on these early neuropsychological assessments at all because mm. the changing con acute conditions of, of our patients. But in our experience, it seems that one good early point for doing these assessments would be when the treating physician neurologist thinks that the patient is ready for discharge because neurologists are they're not uh, discharging disoriented or acutely fluctuating patient by this way we had our assessment approximately after 8 days after stroke we were able to do pretty stable assessments and get reliable results we managed to to establish a routine of doing these early assessments, we have many benefits. The first thing is that because many patients nowadays, they've been receiving primary prevention and, and perhaps most importantly, they receive this uh, highly efficient modern acute stroke care and they do not necessarily have that severe clinical or functional impairment. 
it's becoming clear that the clinical good clinical outcome and a good functional outcome is not it's not enough to to assume a good occupational outcome and this is where we need these neuropsychological assessments and it requires resource of course to do this but it takes actually only one or one and a half hour with the patient and and afterwards we get a pretty good idea who are the patients who are at high risk of adverse occupational outcome and additionally what are the major challenges for this good occupational outcome. Now we've been managing those who've had TIAs as outpatients but is this safe and effective for those who've had an acute minor stroke? Peter Rothwell has been looking into it. He's Professor of Clinical Neurology in the Stroke Prevention Research Unit at the University of Oxford. And he told Nick what he's found. So, Peter, on the face of it, this has a relatively simple and straightforward message, it it seems. So do you want to tell us a bit about the background to the study and how it came about? Yes, thanks, Nick. In the UK and a lot of other countries, we see patients with TIA transient ischemic attacks as outpatients and even in the US outpatient management of TIAs is is beginning to take off but that that's a relatively new thing up until a few years ago in most of Europe and the US uh, even TIAs were were admitted as inpatients i remember being told that the mean length of stay for TIAs in Paris was um was 10 days which is uh surprising from a UK perspective but people have accepted that it is safe and effective to manage TIAs in an outpatient setting if they're, they're investigated acutely. They can then be treated and, and discharged on the same day. And there's much more anxiety there about doing that with, with minor strokes. The risk of complications may be higher. And so in the majority of healthcare systems, the walking wounded strokes, as it were, who don't need nursing care, per se, are admitted to hospital and uh, and often stay for several days. So we were looking at the extent to which it was was safe to allow those patients home on the same day as we do for TIAs. So it seems that the main message to come out of the paper was really that outpatient management didn't result in an increased recurrence of stroke. It didn't result in an increase in readmission at 30 days. And, critically, it was much, much cheaper. So, I mean, is this a result that should be taken at face value up and down the country? Should people running stroke services now be changing their practice, do you think? I think probably, uh, certainly in some centres, this is the practice already. People run, quote, TIA clinics, but they do also see um, a lot of patients who are minor strokes. And of course, what we did was uh, was not a randomised comparison. We we ran a service where we routinely discharged on the same day minor strokes uh, with an NIH score of less than three. And as you say, they did well of the um, 250 cases that we saw, and 237, so 95% were discharged on the same day. And of those, only about 6% were subsequently admitted in the next 30 days. Six for recurrent stroke, three for sepsis, three for falls, and three for other reasons. So overall, we felt that was acceptable. And in fact, the complication rate of the similar cases with NIHS score of less than three who were admitted to hospital 
were very similar. So there was no excess risk of allowing patients to go home. And as you say, the cost was very different. The mean the hospital care cost of those patients with minor stroke who were admitted to hospital was uh, £8,000 versus 700 for those investigated and treated as an outpatient. I suppose one of the things, you know, thinking about the cost, which is perhaps one of the most dramatic results to come out of this, is that the length of stay of the patients admitted was, was quite long, wasn't it? It was about eight days on average. So is that a reflection of the times that these data were collected in? So the study ran from, what, 2001 to 2007? I think that's probably right. The patients that were, were admitted were certainly um, a select group. We looked at those who were, who were referred directly to hospital as opposed to directly to the, uh, the outpatient clinic. And so they're, they're undoubtedly different in the sense they're older and they are more likely to have comorbidities. And so I think partly the length of stay reflects that. But even if we've overestimated it by a factor of two, the secondary care cost would still be £4,000 for uh, inpatient care for four days versus £700 for outpatient care. Yes, those figures are something that people are going to look at with, with great interest, possibly hospital managers just with just as much interest. I suppose one view might be that you know, Oxford has a pretty long history of having a wonderful and efficient system for dealing with stroke uh, and that this has evolved over a few decades now. But some other hospitals who may be just feeling their way in terms of setting up stroke services may not have quite such efficient systems. I don't know whether that is something that would have an effect or not, though. I think it's interesting, isn't it? You can you can look at it, I think, either way. You could say, well, if someone's setting up a system anew, then they can set it up really in any way they, they like. If you're dealing yeah. with a system that's sort of entrenched, yeah. in many ways, it's more difficult to uh, to change it. I think one thing that is worth stressing, though, is that you're right. You do need a well-organized uh, outpatient system so that you can get brain imaging and whatever else is needed cardiac imaging, MR, MRA, on the same day in order yeah. to get everything done and then discharge. So you need the radiologists on side and, uh, and other colleagues on side to, to make it work. Otherwise, you end up admitting more patients waiting for investigation. One slightly interesting aspect of it is that the time to investigation was actually quite a lot less in the outpatients than the inpatients. I think for, for certain investigations, if you're if you're an inpatient, the system feels it can it can wait and get it done tomorrow or the next day. Whereas if you have an outpatient system and it has to be done on the day, paradoxically, you tend to get things done quicker. No, that's interesting. I mean, that's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? There were some slight differences in the secondary preventative strategies that were implemented in the patients in the two groups, weren't there? So, for example, hospital patients more likely to be anticoagulated. And I wonder whether that was just a reflection of differences in the clinical phenotypes of the two groups or whether it was to do with the setting. I mean, is it possible that it's more difficult to pick up paroxysmal atrial fibrillation uh, in patients when you're sticking them in clinic compared to if you were able to put them on a monitor as, a, as an inpatient? That, that's a good point. I think I think you're right. I mean, we certainly did find that there was more AF in the patients referred to hospital and the patients referred to clinic. And I suspect part of that, as you say, is, is, is a sort of recognition bias. But, but also, I think it's 
probably partly where the GPs thought that referral was appropriate. If the GP realised the patient was in AF, I suspect they're more likely to refer them direct to hospital than to the clinic. But certainly the groups were different in a number of ways like that. One of the difficulties is the onward referral for things that we don't always think about immediately. So onward referral for ongoing rehabilitation or patients who have fatigue, these so-called unmet needs. Would there be a bias one way or the other? Do you think one of those groups would have more or less difficulty in accessing any of those services as a result of the setting in which they were managed? I think that's right. I think there'd certainly be um, more initial input in those patients who are admitted to hospital. And in relation to that, one point that's worth worth making is that in the, the outpatient service, all patients are followed up face-to-face at a one-month follow-up clinic. So there is the opportunity then to pick up on those issues and to uh, make sure that um, there aren't any unmet needs that, that hadn't been picked up in the, the acute phase. I think a, a system where patients are seen very, very quickly and uh, relatively briefly in an outpatient setting and then not followed up is certainly a problem and uh, it, it leads to diagnostic errors as well because often the, the clinical picture evolves over a few days and uh, it's clear that it's uh, perhaps not a stroke after all and if the patients aren't seen again by a, a stroke team or a neurologist there is a potential for problems. So one of the issues that you pointed out earlier was that this is not a randomised trial now I think that would be a, I think it would be a relatively harsh criticism of, of your study but you do discuss this in your paper, and I think it's discussed in the accompanying editorial that goes with it, is the possibility of doing a trial like this. And do, you, do you think this is a trial that could be done? Or indeed, do you think it's a trial that really needs to be done? I think it, it could be done. I think there would be some practical difficulties in doing it. You could do it perhaps as a cluster randomised trial, take randomising general practices to a a usually admit strategy versus a usually clinic strategy, for example. I think, I suppose, what we would argue is that the GPs were offered a system where they could refer people to outpatients if they thought it was appropriate, and we looked at the outcome in the uh, minor strokes that were referred to an outpatient clinic, and we showed that the hospital admission rate was very low, the complication rate was very low. I think it was probably so low that even if one did a a large-scale randomized controlled trial, it would be hard to show that the outcome was better for inpatient care in that group. But we certainly wouldn't argue on the basis of this paper that that all patients with minor strokes should be referred and managed purely in an outpatient setting. There was clearly a filter here with the GPs in terms of where they thought was appropriate to send. No, of course. Perhaps the most important factors in dealing with these patients and their outcomes are going to be how quickly they're seen after the initial event and something that's difficult to quantify the the quality of the service and access to investigations. Yes, yes, I think that's right. And I think uh, in, in many ways, a specialist clinic that's well set up to deal with patients acutely, I think it certainly uses the services more efficiently and Our experience anecdotally is that we have quicker access to MR, for example. We have dedicated slots during the day, whereas patients who are admitted under general physicians, stroke physicians, neurology colleagues often wait a day or two for for MR, for example. So it can work better in an outpatient setting.
Okay, Peter, I've got to ask you one last question. I've got, uh, this question always comes up, and I guess it, it has some relevance to this paper, is the definition of a transient ischemic attack. So when you're teaching medical students and they ask you what the definition of a transient ischemic attack is, do you give them the, the standard definition or do you give them the definition that, that we think is the thing that we actually see in the, uh, in the clinical world? In terms of the timing issue exactly. versus the, the whole tissue thing about issue. You know, 24 hours, symptoms yeah. 24 hours. Whereas really a transient ischemic attacks generally will last for about 20 minutes or so. No, you're right. Yeah, the majority of TIAs last for um, last for under an hour. But even those that do last for 10, 15 minutes, you do sometimes find uh, uh, an acute DWI lesion, which could yeah. be described as an, as an infarct. So I tend to stick to the old-fashioned definition that it's something where the symptoms get better within 24 hours, but you can then subdivide that group into those who are DWI positive, who are much higher risk for recurrence, and those that are DWI negative or who are much lower risk. So I've never really seen the compelling argument to change the definition rather than just to subcategorize the TIAs into those with lesions on imaging and those without. Thanks there to Nick Ward and all of our researchers this week. All the papers we discussed, along with many others in Stroke and also some probing editorials, are in the March special Stroke edition. We'll be looking at Parkinson's disease subtypes next month, as well as atypical language representation in epilepsy. So come back then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.